<clears throat> nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody rage short stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nobody Reads Short Stories. You can find all of our previous episodes at nobodyreadsshortstories.com, and we are also on YouTube and Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you find your podcasts. So um, a quick um, a trigger warning for tonight's story. Um, this story does um, involve uh, suicide, so listener and viewer discretion is advised. So here is Craig Sabin reading The Slush Pile Demolitionist by Les Zig. The Slush Pile Demolitionist by Les Zig. Week one, Monday. Constance Towers wasn't what I expected from a senior editor at a boutique publisher. In her gaudy pea poncho, faded pink jeans, and open-toed sandals, she might have been a thrift shopper. Her small face was lost in a mass of coppery hair. Her eyes magnified beyond a pair of oversized violet square-rimmed glasses. She might have been as young as 25 and as old as 45, some timeless literary nymph who now held me in her scrutiny. So you're studying, she asked from behind her pitted oak desk. Her office was books, books on bookshelves piled in teetering towers on the floor and crammed on the window pane, and manuscripts bound, unbound, and fanned on her desk and filing cabinets and the small aquarium with its kaleidoscopic collection of fish. Professional writing and publishing, I told her. Do you see yourself in publishing? Well, I'd love to make it as a writer, obviously. Just in case it wasn't obvious, I'd written novels, short stories, articles, and even a couple of screenplays, a lot of them now yellowing in my old rusty filing cabinet. In the vacuum, a, a lack of success had created, and with growing dissatisfaction over my job, floor clerk at a tech warehouse, my partner had encouraged that at the ripe age of 35, I go back to school and study, learn to put my skills to another use. But I feel I have the talent and experience to become an editor. I said. School had recommended me for this post, a two-week placement with Veracity Publishing, a small indie publisher known for their literary fare. Veracity had probably chosen me due to my marks. I don't want to boast, they're all high distinctions. But still, I felt woefully out of my depth. Veracity Publishing is dedicated to producing bold and innovative work, Constance said. Perhaps you're familiar with some of the authors we've discovered. Oh, yeah, I said. Abdul Khatri, Penelope Christakis, Skip Lago, Eno Misden, Karen McCain. We talked about these authors at school. Except for Eno Misden, the others had enjoyed such success they'd eventually jump to bigger publishers for the money and the fame, what many consider to be the dream. While they were attractive bonuses, they weren't why I wrote. I was still trying to work that out. We're working on Eno Misden's new manuscript, Constance said. Perhaps you'd be interested in reading it after you've settled in. Sure. Well, Constance said, Mr. Stiegler isn't here this week. Stiegler was the boss. The prospect of facing him was daunting. Meeting the boss for the first time always was. Constance was intimidating enough. But he left a note here suggesting we find a bit of reading for you to do. She rose from her chair. Do you know what I mean about reading? The slush pile. Exactly. Our unsolicited submissions. We're one of the few remaining publishers who still have a slush pile. 
She led me from her small cluttered office to the equally cluttered main floor. The six desks whined for mercy under a deluge of paperwork, boxy old computers, and personal knickknacks. The walls were just bookshelves overflowing with a combination of musty classics and veracity's fare. Colorful pot plants were scattered throughout in some hopeless grasp of feng shui, although all they succeeded in doing was kill what little space remained. We picked our way through to the desk in the furthest corner. The piece de resistance to the clutter was a mountain of big yellow envelopes that constituted the slush pile. I wanted to paint a red, I wanted to plant a flag in it and declare it Mount Slushmore. Of course, a flag would mean I'd conquered it, and I doubted that was going to happen. It's not that hard, Constance grabbed one of the envelopes. We still request hard copy submissions. People get lazy with email. If they're going to submit to us, we want them to put effort in. Show us they're serious. She tore open the envelope and took out the submission. She, must have, she mustn't have found what she was looking for. She put the manuscript down on the desk and checked another envelope. Same outcome, then another envelope. Now she flicked through the pages of the manuscript. What do you notice, she asked. The lines of text were tightly packed, which wasn't what you're meant to do when you're submitting to a publisher. You're meant to have space for easy reading so the reader can make notes if needed. Also, the author had used a sans serif font like Ariel, another no-no. Sans serif fonts don't have little tails on the letters the way serif fonts do. The belief is those little tails form an unseen line that makes it easier to read. When submitting to a publisher, you're meant to use a serif font. I relayed my observations. Right. Our website lists the necessary submission requirements from immediate appearances. This manuscript has failed to meet two of the criteria on our checklist. Constance found the accompanying stamped self-addressed envelope and shoved the submission into it. Ditch it. Is that fair? Fair, Constance snorted. If they can't do us the courtesy of meeting our guidelines, why should we do them the courtesy of reading their submission? What if it's a masterpiece? Writing life's tough. What do I say, bad luck? We have a form rejection, Constance told me. Have you seen one before? Now I almost snorted. I'd seen hundreds. What's worse was that they used your own self-addressed stamped envelope, another submission requirement. You've got to stick a stamped self-addressed envelope in with your submission to be a harbinger of your failure. It's like putting a loaded gun in the hand of the guy thinking of murdering you. I've seen a few, I said. If the submission deserves more than a form rejection, Constance went on, feel free to improvise. Just be tactful. Otherwise, read enough to get a feel for a piece, write a paragraph what they're about, why they do or don't work, and whether they're worth pursuing or not. If you like anything, come talk to me. Any questions? Am I qualified for this? Qualified? It's reading, Constance laughed once, shortly but loudly, then turned and headed back to her office. Week one, Tuesday. I wanted to find the next big thing so that I could live vicariously through some unknown success and show myself that it could happen. It might be a one in a million chance, a one in a billion chance, but it was a chance and it could be an inspiration. Only I spent Monday wading through drivel. After I'd read each sub, I'd knock out a paragraph long report on my computer. When the reading got too much, I scribbled in my work placement journal, a school requirement to break up the humdrum. Tuesday morning was little different. Worse, the subs were unending. Constance came around and dumped a whole stack of new submissions on my desk. How many people were writing and submitting? So it was read, read, read. After lunch, I wearily picked up the next sub, a thriller entitled In From the Cold. 
The first chapter was okay, yay, introducing a spy who'd been excommunicated, but had been asked back to deal with, and that's when it happened. Turning the page too quickly, I tore it. I blinked. I shouldn't have been concerned. The page could be reprinted, but what did it say about the publisher if they were so careless with the submission? I was surprised to find I was oblivious to the fact that I was indeed oblivious. The extreme response would be to retype the page, trying to match the font, possibly Georgia or something equally accessible, and the margins, also standard. I could photocopy the page, that would work, although photocopy pages always look like photocopies, particularly compared to originals, or I could just leave the page as it was. They were all workable options. I contemplated them as I finished reading the submission. What started promisingly deteriorated in a twaddle. The writing grew loose, the grammar problematic, and the plot became a ripoff of James Bond. It was so pleasingly bad, it informed what I did next. I scrunched up the torn page, tossed it in the bin, recompiled the rest of the manuscript, and stuck it in the accompanying stamped self-addressed envelope. I imagined what the author would think when he went through this manuscript and found a page missing. He mightn't have made this discovery for weeks, if not months, or even years. Maybe he'd even keep sending out the same hard copy, completely unaware of the missing page. One day, though, he would, he would find it. And what would he think? That the missing page was the cause of the manuscript being rejected? That he'd unwittingly self-sabotaged? I finished the form rejection, which only required me inserting the author's name in the title of the submission, printed out a copy, sat back, and looked at the slush pile with a new appreciation. Week one, Wednesday. Dear Tom, his name was Tim, but what better way to shatter him immediately, particularly given I could pass it off as a typo. Thank you for your recent letter enclosing your manuscript. Even better, the letter was personalized, but the rejection was form. We have viewed and considered your manuscript. I read a chapter and a half. Unfortunately, we have decided not to make an offer of publication. Not unfortunate for us, but for Tom. I mean, Tim. Thank you once again for writing to us, and we wish you every success in placing your manuscript elsewhere. I cannot believe how bad your manuscript is, I would have liked to have written. So much of Mount Slushmore's bounty read as indulgent. Authors so misguided by the belief of their own genius that they put little work into their craft and lessened into revision. They read like first drafts of a sixth grader had peddled out the night before homework was due to be turned in. I knew, this was I knew this with certainty because I'd once had the same outlook. It must have been a rite of maturation as a writer. Now I revised endlessly, only to be equally unsuccessful. But I held on to the hope that there would be something to wow me, something that could be my hope. Week one, Thursday. Constance liked mismatching. Today, green corduroys, a black vest, and a silk lavender shirt with puffy shoulders. It was easy to underestimate her because she didn't fit the stereotype of some exec. Come with me, she told me. Where, I asked. But she was already off, forcing me to jump up and canter to catch up. We spoke about Eno Misden the day you arrived, she said. Eno Misden was a poster boy for students and faculty at school, a writer and poet, funny how those two things aren't synonymous, carving out a niche in the literary community. He'd come to talk at an industry function once, a jittery coat rack with a disproportionately big larynx, who was typically, if not predictably, goth, dark, depressing, doomed. Facsimiles swarmed the hallways of school, peons to a stereotype. They weren't poets, they were peots. Veracity Publishing had picked Eno Sub from the slush pile five years ago. That debut novel and the follow-up had been critical successes that had placed 
well in that it placed well in awards and heralded Eno as a talent for the future. Have you read either of his books? Constance asked. Eno wrote literary fiction, angst-ridden characters coming to grips with being so angsty while trying to find their place in the world. I prefer genre fiction, heroes saving the world and stuff like that. Um, no, I said. We exited the Veracity Loft and weaved our way through the parking lot to Constance's battered red Volkswagen. She didn't pick up the conversation again until she reversed out of her spot as if it had catapulted her. She then shunted her way into the busy morning traffic. We're working on Eno's third book, she said. We're hoping this will be the one. The one, I asked, that sells. Regardless of our commitment to the literary community, we still need to make money. We keep hoping Eno's commercial recognition will catch up with this critical cachet. Everybody at school loves him, I said. They think he's gritty. He's a whorther. A what? A writer who professes artistic merit, but he lives for that effect. He hasn't sold out for money. He sold out to be a starving artist. So what's the purpose of this meeting? Eno's been pestering us for feedback. He's not very secure. Most writers aren't. Their books are their children. They send defenseless into the world. This meeting is to stroke Eno's ego. God knows he needs it. If Eno detects a hint of negativity, he'll jump out a window. Should I be coming to this thing? Uh, to be educational in how to handle authors, that, and in what you shouldn't become. Fifteen minutes later, we were sitting in a train carriage of a bookshop cafe. Tatty tan shades covered the windows so everything had a sapia tint. On a stage at the front, a slam poet pounded out an uncensical poem about oppression. The patrons were as worn and patchwork as the secondhand books scattered on tables and on shelves. Watching the poet, their eyes gleamed with a mindless zeal of zombies. We were punctual, but Eno Misden wasn't, so Constance asked me about my writing. I told her about the stuff I'd written, stashed away in my filing cabinet, and she told me to take my best work and submit it to Veracity. I said I would, but didn't tell her that I'd submitted my best work, Crimson Dreams Waking, to a commercial publisher a few months ago. I'd sent them three chapters when they'd requested to see the whole thing. Off went my bulky yellow envelope, hopefully to discover a new world. When Eno arrived, I noted he was even thinner than the last time I'd seen him. His shoulders and elbows were bulbous knobs in his back shirt, and the prong of his belt poked through a homemade puncture, the third such puncture after all the regular hauls. The only thing that had any health was his lustrous, spiky black hair that I'm guessing had been dyed from some pedestrian shade of brown, an eyeliner that was meant to show what an individual he was. When Constance introduced me as an editorial assistant, he gave me the sort of look people reserve for finding an unflushed turd in a public toilet. Eno, you're looking great, Constance said. Thanks, he said in a tone that suggested he knew he was being handled, but he smiled nonetheless, the phony bastard. That's when I saw them. They peeked out from under the cuffs of his black sleeves, thin white scars on his thin white wrists. Not just one on each either, they crisscrossed, suggesting he'd taken to his wrist repeatedly, although not with any gusto. Life in a bloodshot world, Constance said, is great. Really? Eno's voice trembled. Here was his quandary. He wanted and needed the praise, but would always doubt it. I knew that feeling. It's marvelous, Constance said. Marvelous, such a fake word. Nothing's marvelous, not even the word marvelous. And the title, Constance said. Have I told you this before? No, 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 Eno said. It is it's the embodiment of the struggles you write about. I don't know how you came up with it. 
well, you know, pause to draw out the anticipation of an obvious punchline. I did have to do a lot of research. Then he guffawed this great seesawing laugh like his mouth was trying to eat his own head. For the next 15 minutes, Constance mindlessly praised bloodshot world. Eno would have had to be an idiot to not know he was being flattered, although I didn't discount the possibility, but he lapped it up like an, the unrelenting phony he was. The meeting ended with handshakes, a smile from Eno in my direction. The unsightly turd had been flushed, or perhaps he just closed the lid on it, and the promise that Stiegler would meet with him the following week. Week one, Friday. I read Life in a Bloodshot World last night, a pretentious exploration of the suffering of everyday people as an imagined by an equally pretentious Gothic charlatan. I couldn't imagine the book selling in any meaningful numbers, although it was so indecipherably and hideously ostentatious that reviewers would be afraid to criticize it just in case it was the next big thing. They continue to trumpet Eno as an important literary voice. Going into veracity, I was looking forward to the unassuming bunk of the slush pile purifying me of Eno's putrescence, but Constance, waiting at my desk, had other ideas. Did you read Life in a Bloodshot World, she asked. Yeah. Do you know what a media release is? An overview of the book for the media and reviewers. Have you ever written one? Nope. Well, let's give the slush pile a rest for the morning, Constance said. Give the slush pile a rest? What about me? The slush pile never tires. Constance accessed Veracity's network drive from my computer and opened several files. These are examples of media releases, she said. They're not complicated. Copy the format and apply it to Bloodshot World. I didn't really like the book, I told her. In publishing, you're not always going to work on books you like. Do your best. She smiled and left me at it. After several false starts, I knocked out half of a first draft. Summary. A spurious, if not disingenuous, insight into the everyday fears and insecurities of everyday people, life in a bloodshot world will appeal to conceited morons who will read it simply for the bragging rights that they've done so. It'll complete the meaningless little lives in meaningless little ways, allowing them to regale meaningless little friends at meaningless little social gatherings with bloodshot world's quasi-enlightened drivel. This effort provided the foundation for my second draft. Summary. Life in a Bloodshot World offers a telling insight into the everyday fears and insecurities of ordinary people. Honest, confronting, and enlightening, Bloodshot World is a gripping and brutal parable, unrelenting in assaulting us with the everyday problems we must all face and the extremes to which they may push us. Bloodshot World is about a married couple with a seven-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. The father's an alcoholic, a gambler, and questioning his sexuality while the equally lush wife faces the stagnation of her life. Trapped by kids, housework, and domesticity, she trolls the slums, engaging in seedy trysts. I could see now why Constance referred to Eno Misden as a horther. Finishing the media release, I printed it out and took it to Constance. She skimmed it, then nodded. Excellent, she said. If you don't make it as a writer or in publishing, you can always try copywriting. I wasn't sure how to take that. Saturday and Sunday. If you hadn't been able to tell, a restlessness had crept into my life. It had nothing to do with my family. My partner has always been supportive and my eight-year-old daughter and six-year-old son are great kids. Our husky, although she's getting on as a character herself. But now, when I sat in front of the computer to write, I couldn't find the words. The slush pile reflected my own hopes. Maybe I just wasn't good enough. Maybe I just, maybe I was just like all those poor saps I rejected. 
Of course, a publisher requested my full manuscript. My partner was much more excited about the prospect than I was. I was guarded. I didn't want to go all in, like this was the only hand I had remaining. But it was beginning to feel that way. Week two, Monday. If you took Santa Claus out of his red costume and plunked him in a tweed suit and a leather beret, that would be Stiegler. His snowy hair had been tied back into a ponytail. His black shoes were pointed. He swept in this morning, exchanging jovial greetings with everyone. The dread I felt had less to do with him and more to do with the expectation that soon I'd have to meet him, the boss. I buried my head in Mount Slushmore. The submissions kept coming in. No wonder so many publishers stopped accepting unsolicited stuff. But there was a gleefulness I extracted from the drivel. I was meant to read enough to get a feel for a submission. Sometimes this meant I had to read all of it, three chapters and a synopsis. Other times, I didn't have to venture so deeply. As was the case, for example, with A Hero's Journey and Back Again, a fantasy epic, well, an intended epic. It began, A Hero's Journey and Back Again. Chapter one. After years in the West, the hero Trebor finally returned to the homes of his fathers. A hero of quests beyond count, Trebor had fought heroically in wars and crusades. A lesser man, a lesser hero, may have succumbed, if not to the physical ardors of battle, then to the psychological deterioration encouraged by death and despair. But one thought had always sustained Trebor. Italan. She was his love his life, a reason to live. Without her, Trebor knew he never would have found the strength sick to be a hero. That was as much as I needed, my report. A hero's journey and back again. Underwhelming fantasy fair featuring Trebor, who was apparently a hero. His journeys into the lands of the West and the battles he must fight and quests he must achieve before he can be with his one true love, Edelin, poorly written. What I didn't glean from the paragraph I read, I got from the synopsis provided with the manuscript. If you think such a snap judgment was horrible, consider this. Moving forward. One, Lisa. Lisa was a zany. Zany, really, that immediately prejudiced me against the story. The rest of the submission fortunately made a good case for prejudices. A trinkling of submissions, however, verged on good, leaving me thinking that with lots of sympathetic editing, they could be something. That's all some of these writers needed, guidance and a chance. I took one sub I enjoyed to Constance, a story of magical realism where a beleaguered homemaker begins believing she's a sorceress. Constance read it while I waited, saw the potential, then told me it would need too much nurturing. You can tell the writer's not quite there yet with their craft, she said. It'd take years of going back and forth to get it to a publishable standard. We just don't have the resources, unfortunately. But maybe one day the writer will get there themselves. Maybe. So I went back to my desk and rejected. 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 Between the arbitrary rejections and the sabotage, I became a petty despot, intoxicated with power, qualifying it with the rationale that when I did find something good, I would kick it up. Week two, Tuesday. A big shadow fell over me in Mount Slushmore. I thought it was Constance with another deposit of submissions. Nope, Stiegler. We'd missed one another yesterday. Presumably he was busy catching up on everything. Well, hopefully not everything. His scrutiny was in itself inscrutable. This inexplicable thing that running his own publishing house had abstracted. 
How well had he learned to read people? Did he know what I'd been doing? Was he wondering how this mature age student was surpassing the reading quota met by his previous readers? You wanna come into my office, he asked. His office was bigger than Constance's and the bare other than, and bare other than for an oak desk, the phone, a Mac laptop and two chairs. Stiegler gestured for me to sit down, then took his own seat, one of those ergonomic recliners that had probably been made especially for him. So, Stiegler said, tell me about yourself. For the last week, I've been culling your slush pile. I'm a writer, I said, plummeting into the spiel I had delivered whenever I met new people, although an unsuccessful one. An unsuccessful writer, Stiegler chuckled, like this was an archetype with which he was not only familiar, but very good friends with. Of course, given he ran veracity, I'm sure he had the archetype over on such a regular basis that it was now a cliche. What do you write, he asked. Well, there's nothing I haven't written over the years, novels, screenplays, stories, articles, I said. I've had a few little things published and nibbles at some of the bigger stuff. I waited for a prompt, but when none came, I had to elaborate. I mean, I, I haven't had much luck, any luck actually, but I still send stuff out. I was once a writer myself, Stigler said. Not very good, mind you, but I understand the nature of submission and the requirement of perseverance. You should, su you should submit something to us. Constance said the same thing. You'll find this is often the way publishing works. It's sometimes a case of who you know. You're getting two weeks of free, we're getting two weeks of free labor out of you. I'm sure we can offer something in return. In any case, don't be discouraged. You're still young. I'm five years older than Eno Misden. Stiegler harumphed although I, could tell, I couldn't tell whether the sound was derision or amusement. Some people literally blunder into luck, he said, like they'd stepped in a pile of dog shit on a morning walk while others make their own. Eno was lucky, right time, right place, right tone of work. Still, he's never captured the market the way we would have liked. Understandable, given he writes pretentious crap. Stiegler's phone rang. He glanced at it and arched his brows. Speak of the devil, he said, excuse me. He picked up the phone. Eno, how are you? Eno's voice on the other end sounded like the indecipherable babble they used to give adults in the old Charlie Brown cartoons. You have to excuse me, Eno, Stiegler says, but I was on a buying trip. More sputter from Eno. Yes, yes, I'm reading it. Obviously inquiring about his book, probably so he could have his ego stroked further. The bastard. Getting it from Constance hadn't been enough. No, no, let me finish it before I comment. But please, Mr. Stiegler, I imagine you know whining. I'm such a worthless little ingrate. Please give me some praise, please. Really, Eno, let's talk about it later this week. Oh, how will I survive? My life shall be a misery. Very well. How about tomorrow? At that cafe in the city where we signed you? Do they still let in bleak, moronic pretenders? Yes, yes, you know. Oh, the joy the thundercloud has lifted from my life. Please, Mr. Stiegler, put me down so that I may be miserable again. Really, really, you know, you'll just have to wait. Be harsher with me, please, Mr. Stiegler. If you'll excuse me, you know, I am in a meeting. Midday tomorrow. I'm going to sulk. See you then. I am happy again. Stiegler hung up the phone. Sorry about that. That's okay. To get back to the point, I was going to make things change. I was astounded how easily he could resume the thread of our conversation. Or you changed them, he added. Me? My paranoia spiked. Was he referring to my work on Mount Slushmore? It may be a cliche, but we make our own fate. Oh, 
I don't think Shakespeare could have written a more appropriate response. So why professional writing and publishing? After trying to make it as a writer for so long, I thought I had talents that could be applicable to the industry. Stiegler's eyes narrowed. He knew a line. What sort of talents? Editing. I wanted to leave it at that, but Stiegler's gaze compelled me to yield something more. I think I know how to put a story together, how to make it work, how to revise it so that it realizes its fullest potential. That was my favorite term at school, realize its fullest potential. It's what I told students who submitted to the school journal when I was editor. I just want your piece to realize its fullest potential. Still, Stiegler didn't blink. So, yeah, I said, again, feeling the need to fill the silence. Editing. Stiegler arched one bushy eyebrow, the thing going up like it was a meter measuring just how much crap I could talk. And how have you found the course? It's good, I said. Again, the silence. It was like an empty pool on a hot day. It just had to be filled. I mean, I think I had a pretty good grasp of things going into the course, but I've learned stuff. I left it hanging, hoping Stiegler would move on. He didn't, the bastard. Important stuff, I offered, but no good. Stiegler still kept quiet, the bastard. And it's good talking to like-minded people. It's like when I was at high school, I was always the loner, the weird kid. I think because I wanted to be a writer while everyone else was doing teenage stuff, I was reading or lost in my imagination, wanting to write stories. Stop me, please. But now it's like a whole school full of people like me. Well, not just like me, but close enough. I guess maybe I'm surprised by the talent of some of them and to think there'll be more next year and the year after that and so on. Constance tells me you've done wonders with the slush pile. I've done something all right. Um, thanks, I said. She's impressed by your reports, Stiegler went on. She thinks they show real insight. However, you haven't kicked anything up for consideration. I just haven't really read anything, I said, now conscious not to speak too slowly, too quickly, or to stammer, which deserved it. I showed Constance one. She said the standard needed to be higher. Indubitably, Eno's first book was, in fact, the last lush pile submission we accepted, and that was five years ago. The percentages of that acceptance almost made me shudder. Could you see yourself working in an office like this? I hated myself for thinking it, but is this where people went when they didn't make it? Like that old saying, those who can do, those who can't teach. Would landing in a job like this be a capitulation? It was a lofty thought I wanted to crush as arrogant, but it scared me all the same. I guess, I said, I'm not really used to uh, office life. I think you'd excel, Stiegler said. Think about it. Thanks. Stiegler got up and thrust his hand across the table. It's been a pleasure to meet you. I rose and shook his hand. You too, sir. And meant it. Week two, Wednesday. Numerous little cafes and restaurants shared the same alley promenade. You couldn't tell which sets of tables belonged to what establishment. And it was so packed, I got a sense of everything and everybody around us closing in. Poor Eno bobbled at our table like a pathetic windsock, but Stiegler beamed as if the lunchtime hubbub powered him. Eno's manuscript, the pages curling, the corners dog-eared, Stiegler's keys sitting on top as a paperweight, was nestled among our empty plates and glasses, arguably the most unpalatable, unpalatable thing on the table. I've been worrying, Eno said, once we'd finished eating and the pleasantries were out of the way. Worrying, Stiegler asked. About the book. You always worry, Stiegler turned to me and chortled. He always worries. Such a perfectionist. So 
You like it then? Eno asked. Eno, Eno, Eno. Eno leaned forward the way a puppy might try to coax a caress from its owner. Eno, this, this is, yes, Mr. Stiegler, yes, just not good enough. Not good enough? While it brims with potential in its current state, it's too self-important and dense. You know, slumped, a scarecrow who just had its stuffing ripped out. The weirdest thing was the fist-pumping elation I felt. Constance said it was going wonderfully. And Miss Towers is a soft touch. Let's talk realities. Your last two books, everybody loved them, nobody bought them. We need a book everybody loves and everybody buys. Actually, I'd even settle for a book that nobody loves, but everybody buys. This, Stiegler drummed the manuscript, is frankly lacking. You know, jumped to his feet and would have upended his chair had he any real weight and skittered away. I kept waiting for the wind to blow him back, but I guess even the wind had taste. You know, scooted around the corner. I expected Stiegler to be stern and condemning, but he smiled until the color rose in his cheeks. Yes, he said. Well, it's not that bad, I said. It's not something I'd read and it's pretentious, but you're making out like it's the worst thing ever. Damn it, Stiegler said, it's adequate. Now he stroked the manuscript like it was a cat purring contentedly in its lap. But you treated him so poorly, viciously, condescendingly. Stiegler bellowed uproariously with laughter. He's an author. They all need to be treated differently. His grin broadened until it threatened to split his face in two. But the expression was forced, a mimicry. Here was a man who might have failed at writing fiction, yet perpetrated the greatest fiction of them all, that he was empathetic. We've coddled Eno, and for what? Eno feigns sufferance, but he plays that for the Marquis. He's not a starving artist. He inherited his house and a comfortable nest egg from his parents. He could give it all up, but then he genuinely face a struggling existence. He doesn't want that, so perhaps he, need a, he needs a dose of reality to find the verisimilitude his writing requires. Anyway, he's contracted. Sorry? Well, just in case you're worried that he'll flee to another publisher. I wasn't. He's contracted for three books, Stiegler said, and damn him, we'll have that third book. Week two, Thursday. Bulky yellow envelope, but it didn't belong to Mount Slushmore. It poked out of my mailbox slot like an impudent tongue mocking me. Bulky yellow envelopes meant only one thing, rejection. If the publisher had accepted my manuscript, they'd call me or email me. They wouldn't be returning my manuscript in that death warrant of a yellow envelope. I snatched it out of the mailbox and tore it open. There was no dread, no anticipation, no anything. Years ago, my heart would race, my hands would tremble, and I'd pause before opening the envelope, savoring the possibility of success. Time, rejection, and repetition had destroyed that excitement. My eyes went straight to the body of the text. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to consider your manuscript. We read it with interest, but I regret that we will not be making an offer of publication. We do not feel we are the right firm to successfully publish this book. Thank you for thinking of us, and we wish you every success in finding a publisher for your work. Two thank yous to neuter my hopes. He must have enjoyed doing it, the bastard. I inferred bliss in every word. And sure, here was the moment I had an epiphany empathizing with the author of my rejection letter, this moment of enlightenment acknowledging what I'd been doing and repent or whatever, but it didn't happen. I went into veracity. Mount Slushmore was bigger today, and now it didn't seem as unconquerable. Today, I was planting my flag. Week two, Friday. Well, Stiegler, 
I sat opposite him in his office. He was nothing but unflinching sternness now. He might have been a judge weighing up the merits of delivering the death penalty to a hapless defendant. Would you care to explain the work on the slush pile? Yesterday, I'd gauged submissions solely on instinct, an artiste who used all forms of munitions, instinctively evaluating the competency of the prose, the word choices, the name choices, the shape of the text on the page, the font used to blow the crap out of the slush pile. I'd wanted to find that one quality submission that would reaffirm my dreams. Stiegler had said the last slush pile submission they'd accepted was Eno's first book, and he was a fake. That's not what I wanted. There had to be something real. Stiegler's phone rang. I jolted. Stiegler remained unmoved. His phone continued to ring. He picked it up and listened. Wait, he said. I'll be right there. Relief. He'd be right there. Which meant, come with me, Stiegler said. What? Stiegler led me to his tan Merc in the parking lot. The model had to be 20 years old, but was as close to pristine as maintenance would allow. An air freshener shaped like a pine tree hung from the rearview mirror, the scent cloying. Where are we going? I asked. Stiegler started the car, the engine purring to life. Sorry, cliche, but I couldn't help it in my frazzled state. Eno's having problems, he said. What sort of problems? Problems, Stiegler said, navigating the car into busy early morning traffic. I wanted to push it, not because I was interested in Eno, but because it would mean we were talking about anything but what I'd done. But I didn't have the courage to try Stiegler's mood, so we said nothing for the first 15 minutes as Stiegler drove into the leafy inner suburbs, our only accompaniment, some opera that played from the stereo. The LCD display identified it as Wagner's Gotterdammerung. I just started to feel the littlest bit comfortable when Stiegler took a deep breath like he was cocking his mouth to fire a barrage. Veracity Publishing stands for something, he said. We want to enhance our literary culture. We want to look outside mainstream avenues and promote innovation and originality. The slush pile is one of our best resources to discover brave new authors. Brave new authors? What do they do? Fight lions? But the thought had no wit. The air freshener scent grew nauseating. Obviously, working one's way through the slush pile is daunting, Stiegler said. It's the age of computers, the internet, blogs, social media, idiots telling us what they do daily, what they think hourly, whatever comes into their head, whoring themselves for fleeting gratification. Everybody thinks they're a creative. Worse, every home has a computer, so it's much easier to write and submit to a publisher. That means that every slush pile reader has to find their own way of dealing with the volume of material. Here it was. There was no escaping this. You got through quite a bit of the slush pile yesterday, Stiegler said. I tried to think of a way to justify my expediency, but nothing sounded believable. Constance has been admiring your work. Stiegler slammed the brakes. I was thrown forward in my seat and lassoed back by the seatbelt. Get out, he said. Before I could ask why, he was out of the car with surprising nimbleness. I unbuckled the seatbelt, opened the door, and dizzy, nauseous, and uncoordinated, fell out of the car, expecting a mob-like hit. So this was the crime for defiling the slush pile. Damn, independent publishers were unforgiving. But Stiegler moved away from me. We pulled up outside a house, one of those squat brick affairs that were boxed in alongside every other house on a street teeming with weeping willows and scattered leaves. Stiegler was at the front door ringing the bell and calling out, Eno? Nothing. Stiegler gestured for me to join him. I trudged through the yard, hauling the burden of my guilt behind me. Bizarrely, the guilt wasn't for what I'd done, but that I'd been caught, the lament of so many criminals. Eno, Stiegler said again, as he now, as he now not only rung the bell, but also thumped on the door, but still no answer. 
He tried the doorknob. It turned. He swung the door open, then stopped. As I arrived on the porch, I saw why. Two streams of blood stole down the length of the hallway's floorboards. We should call the police, I said, but Stiegler was already on the way in. I didn't want to follow and even made a conscious decision not to. But there I was, tiptoeing behind Stiegler. He moved with surety. Morbid fascination drove me. The blood ran from an archway leading into what turned out to be the lounge room. The decor was old, gaudy green velvet couches, a mahogany coffee table and a pastiche woolly rug and a line of family photos on the mantle above the fireplace. Various vases, lamps, and ceramic knickknacks sat on end tables. It wasn't the room of a Gothic writer, but a snapshot into the past. He knows past of middle-class suburbia, replete with warmth, familiarity, and love. A recliner faced the TV, the only two contemporary items in the room. On the recliner's armrest sat a thin, pale arm, Eno Misden's arm. The wrist was slashed so deep that it exposed bone. Blood trickled from the wound and pooled upon the floor. I couldn't see the other wrist because of the recliner's backrest, but I guessed it must be the same given the second stream of blood. Stiegler grabbed the recliner's headrest and spun the chair to reveal Eno Misden. He was paler than ever, his eyes frozen in curious astonishment. In his lap rested a disheveled printout of his manuscript. A bloody straight razor sat on the cover page in a splotch of blood. I imagined how it had played out. Stiegler had shattered him the previous day, not just shattered his confidence, but him, Eno Misden. So Eno came home and tried to reconcile his life and his work, genuinely suffering. He manically worked on his manuscript until late last night. He printed it out and reread it, doubting the quality of every word. Come the morning, the insecurity is too much. So Eno fetched a straight razor. The scars emblazoned across his wrists rebuked him as a phony, so he decided to do it for real this time. He picked up his phone, sitting on a small end table adjacent to the recliner, ring, Stiegler, and what? I didn't know, but he indicated to Stiegler there was a problem. He wanted to show Stiegler that he was for real this time. Then Eno hung up, cut himself to the bone, and bled to death. Call the police, Stiegler said. I, I don't know where we are. Stiegler pulled out his mobile and called the police as I sat on the couch. This was meant to be a work placement, and yet here I was unraveling, and had been unraveling, if I were honest, from the moment I'd walked into veracity. Was this the end you faced when you made the wrong beginning? When you realized that everything you thought was real wasn't real at all? The cops came, as did the paramedics, and even a few reporters. But Stiegler handled the lot so clinically, they may have bored him. Maybe they did. Maybe this is all in the fine print of his job description. It was late afternoon before we were dismissed. Stiegler filched Dino's bloody manuscript and drove us to veracity to the same Wagner opera. It must have been on loop. The offices were empty, a relief. I didn't know if I could face anybody else right now. In my absence, Mount Slushmore had grown. Good on it. There was one unassailable truth. People kept writing. They took their lives, their dreams, and their fantasies and tried to wrestle them into a coherent narrative. For what? To tell their story, to share their story for fame, riches, self-gratification, all of the above. I kept doing it despite my lack of success and only now in the wake of Eno's death, found it wasn't because I desired any of that, but I wanted to share and connect with people in a way I usually didn't. Unlike Eno, I wanted to find that truth in myself. 
Sit down, Stiegler said. I sat at my desk. Stiegler planted Eno's manuscript on another desk, then wheeled out the chair, dodging around a pot plant full of purple and yellow pansies so he could sit opposite me. He gestured at Mount Slushmore. So here it was. Despite everything that happened today, I still had to face my crimes. You know, Stiegler said, although now he was quite conversational, I was saying before, everybody's a writer. No matter what they do in life, no matter how capable they are, no matter how imaginative, they all try. Do you know what that means? Lots more tripe? Yes. Stiegler's voice was a gleeful whisper. Lots. Somebody needs to be the silent guardian, the watcher at the door, the last vestige of quality control. Somebody needs to uphold literary integrity while the digital world drowns us in muck and shit and irrelevancies. Why bother with a slush pile at all then? Because there will be that diamond in the rough, Stiegler grinned, a caricature of joy that escalated into a combination of malice and relish. I like your work on the slush pile. I like it a lot. It's not enough to reject those pretenders. They have to be discouraged. They have to be stopped. And you are doing that. What if, no, Stiegler jumped up so abruptly that his chair rolled back into the desk behind it. Don't question it. The ones who want to write will keep coming back. They won't be able to help themselves. That's who writers are. Well, genuine writers, true voices. You know that, don't you? He was seeing inside me. Despite my rejection, despite my despondency, I would dust myself off and keep writing, keep submitting, because that's who I was. I'd done it before, and I'd do it again. Let the pretenders fall, Stiegler said. You just have to recognize the uncut gems. And if I get it wrong, leave that to marketing. You can sell anything if you want it bad enough and are prepared to make sacrifices. Sacrifices? Like Eno? Had he been a sacrifice? His suicide would popularize his book and be a launch pad into bestseller strata. Had Stiegler manipulated Eno to this very result? Could he be that cold and calculating? Did I drive Eno to suicide, Stiegler said? That's what you're thinking. I nodded slowly. What do you think? I couldn't believe anybody could be so heartless, but I caught those glimpses of Stiegler's ruthlessness. Had I made more of them than they are? Or hadn't I feared them enough? Right now, I was too confused to make sense of it, but if I sorted through it, I was sure I would find an answer. The question was whether I wanted to face that answer. I looked uncertainly at Eno's manuscript on the other desk. Stiegler must have read my indecision. His eyes were unblinking as he nodded once. Your placement finishes today, he said, but I want you to work for me when you finish your schooling. I can understand how this unfortunate experience might have soured you, but if not me, if not veracity, I'm willing to recommend you to a publisher of your choice. He clapped me on the shoulder. You found your place, at least for now. Smiling, he took Eno's manuscript, entered his office, and closed the door. For a long time, I gaped after him. Then I turned to the slush pile, grabbed an envelope, and opened it. Craig, thank you so much for this wonderful read. That was so great. It was a fun one to read. <laughs> um, so very thankful to have, have Craig today to, to read this story. Just to give you a little bit of background on Craig, Craig is a screenwriter with a background in sketch comedy. 
We created and co-wrote the long-running zombie radio show podcast. He teaches screenwriting at USC, that's the University of Southern California, and is currently writing a book on Lenny Python. He has helped lead the Studio Cities Writers Group for the last 20 years. Craig, as always, thank you so much for, for lending your talent with us. Thank you, Megan, and thank you, Les. Great fun. All right, so I want to introduce our special guest tonight. Um, this is, I'm very excited to have her on the show. This is uh, Christine Sneed, who we actually featured on an earlier, we featured one of her stories on um, an earlier episode of Nobody Reads. And I will just, before we bring her on, I will read you a little bit about uh, Christine's a plethora of projects and, and books that she has going on. So Christine Sneed's most recent books are the story collections, Direct Sunlight and Please Be Advised, a novel in memos. Her stories have appeared in the Best American Short Stories, O. Henry Prize Stories, Plowshares, New England Review, The Southern Review, and many other publications. She teaches fiction writing for Northwestern University's NFA program in the School of Professional Studies, where she is also faculty director, and for the Stanford University Continuing Studies. You can also find Christine on Substack under the name Bookish. Uh, she has a, a plethora of resources there for you, as well as very um, wonderful and inciting uh, conversations with writers. And um, Christine is so impressive. We could do an entire episode on, on her, uh, but if you'd like to do a deep dive into, into her varied works and uh, her other projects, uh, you can find her on her website, christinesneed.com. So let's bring on Christine. Morning. Good morning, Christine. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's really fun. I love talking about short stories. So oh. thank you for asking. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I love that when I was actually um, reviewing all of your, uh, your, your books and things. Um, uh, one of the things that, that I really love about your, your work and the work that you do is, is that love for short stories that really comes through when you look at the projects that you do and the interviews that you do. Um, it's, it's very clear that you, that you have, you have that love. Um, would you say that you are um, more inclined to short stories than you are novels, or do you think the relationship is different? I, you know, I if I could always have the opportunity to publish story collections, I would probably just do that, write them. Maybe not exclusively, but I I really love reading story collections, and I love writing short stories. Mm -hmm. Novels are obviously there's, I mean, countless novels worth that worth reading out there and I read them too but I I just if I had my choice I would probably always choose the short story collection over um, the novel or most always unless it's you know a writer who I love who who's a novelist too so right right oh, I, I I love that is there anything like particular that you that you feel like gravitates you toward a short story or um like the short writing in the short story genre you know, it's, I think part of it is it's, there's a sort of compression and a clarity sometimes to a short story that some novel novelists do write in a vein that is like a short story writer. I, or I should say, I'm thinking specifically about George Saunders, who, even though he has published Lincoln and the Bardo and was celebrated for that novel, I think he probably 
is also someone who prefers short stories. And he has, he's talked about the line by line energy that he really aspires to. And I've quoted him so many times um, in classes and in some essays that I've written too about it. And I just, that's what I think is so good about a short story. There is a cert certain line by line energy in so many stories, especially the really good ones. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I love that. I love that, that phrasing of line by line energy. Cause I know when I'm, when I'm writing a short story, I feel very present and I feel like very kind of in the moment more than I do if I'm working on a longer piece, you know, I feel like I, uh, and I'm tapped into that more than if I'm working on a, a longer screenplay or, a, or if I'm working on a novel where I feel like I have to, part of my brain has to stay in the, the larger picture. Whereas with a short story, I feel um, just just present more than I might. Yeah, guess. yeah, I, 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 I think that there is a, also a sense of maybe freedom with a short story, whereas a novel or a screenplay especially a feature, it's, you know, obviously much longer and it could take so many different turns, <laughs> many of them not for the better. So short fiction just feels more forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes. You can, you can definitely take those wrong turns in the longer pieces. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a very good point. <laughs> um, well, um, I appreciate you. I know that, um, that you you um, were into Alessa's story and um, gravitated toward it because of your um, your uh, experience with publishing. I know you have extensive experience there. Um, was there um, anything just to get the the conversation started? Was there what what drew you to um, the story the most? Do you think? Well, it's interesting how the author has, you know, a publisher who he's basically like, people should just stop writing if they can't do it properly. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and also there's sort of this feeling or he more or less states if no one basically, no one told you you should write. So if, if you don't want to do it or you're, it causes you too much agony, we don't need you to write. So, and I, and I think in our, and especially in the US, and I know Lessig is Australian, we're told like, oh, just go for it. And, and I, you know, I've talked to a lot of writers over the years and had many, many students who have said, I wrote this novel, I really have to publish it. And I'm like, well, that's how you feel, but it doesn't mean that it's going to get published. Or if you self-publish it, you're not going to have many readers probably. So write something else, just keep writing. And as a screenwriter too, you know, you know, there's no guarantee. It's impossible to sell a script for, in most cases, it's, you know, anyway, that's another topic. But um, I, I liked that sort of dark, non-American um, ethos. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, it's not dark, it's just realistic and sort of, you know, ruthless. I appreciated it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I, I appreciated about this story too, um, that it it feels very real to the industry and to what it's like to be a writer. And you do come up against a lot of the, that mentality of like, well, 
why do you write and should you if you can't write something that's going to be published and going to make a lot of money like why should you write and it, it does open up all of these questions but which i think we as we as artists have to kind of face ourselves but when you step out of your artistic realm and you face what the reality of the industry i think it's this story captures that very well and i think it's a it is a cautionary tale for that artist part of us that um, that needs to understand the realities and it's not sugar-coated and it's not um, a sort of story where you're just going to be plucked from obscurity and given and given your dreams. Uh, it's, yeah, really, I mean, it's, it's ironic that the person who was plucked from the slush pile then kills himself. Yeah. <laughs> because his third novel is not ready and he just, I mean, that was interesting in that that was the choice the author made for, for that character, how to finish him off. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad most of us writers are not suicidal, or at least we're not acting on any suicidal impulses. <laughs> but I, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. And but I but I think the artistic temperament and and the depending on where you are sort of in your life or in your mental state you know being a, a writer and and hearing certain things can put you in in that state and some of us sur survive those those darker moments and then and then some of us don't um and i do think that it's interesting that it is his third it is his third novel because I think we're, especially in America, we're also under the impression that once you have one book published and, or if you have one success, then you're, you're successful forever. It's a static existence. Whereas we know as artists, you, every project, every story, every screenplay you write is going to, you're going to start from square one and there's no guarantees that the next one is going to, to, um, to keep your your success rolling. Yeah, yeah. I um, I I have had as a writer, as a novelist and story writer, I've had four books published with a big press and corporate press, and then my other, my most recent books, the three of them, one of which is an anthology of short stories that I edited. They've all three of them have been published by different independent presses. So it was a quite a different experience, you know, releasing those three books, which had no budget at all for marketing and publicity. I had to pay for everything. So, mm. you know, with, you know, some galleys being covered by the publishers, but for the most part, you know, it's, you know, it's just really difficult to keep making a living as a, as a writer. And I thought Zig did a great job of, you know, with humor, making it clear that it's not glamorous at all, mm -hmm. the writing life. And self-doubt is, you know, a companion. It's a constant companion for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's another thing I really appreciated about this story is that even though it, it is dark in moments um, and realistic, it, it does have this humor to it. It has the, the humor that makes it authentic because none of this situation, you have to look at it with a certain a bit of humor, otherwise um, it's just not palpable. Uh, we wouldn't keep going. Um, but I, but I think the the humor that he uses in the story is is authentic. Like it makes the 
it adds to the authenticity of the story. It, yeah, it certainly does. I mean, as you said, I think off camera that Zig has worked in a publishing house. So um, he knows the slush pile is, you know, there's the constant nagging off camera force for, or off stage force of complaint and it needs attention and it's just relentless. It's funny how he says at one point, I was gone for three hours and there's another mountain of slush <laughs> envelopes waiting for me or something like that. I thought that was, that was funny. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that as well. What do you, it, uh, like when I was uh, rereading this story for the, to do this episode, I, I thought a lot at the, about the ending and about like, do you think the the main character takes the editor up on his offer, and do you think he's going to join this this world, or like, what do you, what did you sort of get from the the ending, and like, what do you think is going to happen to this character? <laughs> well, I think one thing that's interesting is you can pretty much infer whatever you want. I mean, I I think I'd be curious to know what the author wanted us to think if anything specific my sense was he for a while i don't know if this is a man or a woman or a non-binary character just they just say partner i don't think we do we get their name I don't uh, think we, we don't even get their name no, no right so i i wondered i think probably for if you were going to write a sequel i would have this person maybe they end up taking over for ziegler like they, I could see them and then just really being um, known for being ruthless, but also like picking authors who he or she or they ends up championing and they become successful because I think this is really a story in part about artistic integrity and, mm -hmm. you know, wanting to publish good books, but just finding that it felt to me like he's critiquing a lot of the stuff that's getting published by corporate presses. And mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time thinking about that because I teach a publishing industry class at Northwestern. And and a lot of the stuff that's, as you probably noticed, if you've look, been looking at any of the new releases, or, I mean, I get a ton of emails about publishing and a lot from bookstores too. A lot of the books are, you know, they have celebrity bylines. Mm -hmm. um, memoirs are perennial, celebrity memoirs especially are, perennial bestsellers usually. Um, and a lot of them are ghostwritten. The writer, the most of them are, unless the celebrity is in fact a writer too. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm guessing, I think Steve Martin wrote his memoirs as, as did mm -hmm. Carrie Fisher. But I have a friend who's a ghostwriter here in LA. Most of them, even like the, the fiction, like Tom Hanks's novel, my friend Sarah's like, oh, he probably had a ghostwriter. I, I was like, really? I know he wrote a story collection. I thought he actually wrote those stories. I know Harper's actually published one of his stories recently, Tom Hanks. So I, I was surprised to hear that. But I mean, corporate presses are just looking to make money. You know, I mean, it's understandable that they would do that. But um, also, like, books are objects that used to have a lot of cultural value. And I don't think they do as much as they used to. Small presses and indie presses are sort of picking up, you know, the... Um, slack but they don't like i know as a writer who was published by a big press bloomsbury um and then and now being published by smaller presses they can't i mean I, my books are not really in bookstores unless i do an event there mm -hmm. so sig is writing about what i think is sort of like the corporate takeover conglomeration of 
um, the book industry and how it's been not great for, you know, cultural value. Right. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point too. And I think it's also a commentary on how, how writers view other writers and their sort of yeah. judgment, judgment of them and, and how they operate. And then I feel like at the end, the main character is sort of figuring out how he, yeah, is he going to be, is he going to have integrity with, with how he moves forward in his life as an artist or as an editor or working in the publishing industry, or is he going to give in to more of, you know, like this mentor type character who is, who's asking to, to bring him on. I think he's, um, like leaving us with that character's sort of rumination on where is he going to be in 10 years? Where's he going to yeah. be in five years? Yeah. What's that, what's that going to look like? And is he going to perpetuate the cycle or is he going to, to try Maybe to Zig will is working on a series about this character of series of stories or has written another one since, I don't know. I guess you'll know when you talk to him. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely ask him that. Cause I would, I would be curious of, about that as well. Um, and I, th and I think to your point about independent bookstores picking up slack and in, in terms of a cultural representation, I, th I think that's, I think that's spot on. And I see that also in films, like yeah, a lot of indie filmmakers are, are taking up that slack because there just aren't those, those types of films being produced in the, in the, in the studios, the way that they used to be. And, um, both industries are, are, are feeling, um, are, are feeling the lack of like new and fresh ideas and, and given the space to kind of explore more about like what people are feeling on a cultural level versus just being entertained. Yeah. And I think the, you know, formula is for books and for film, the fact that there's been so many shows or movies about video games or based on video games. Mm -hmm. It's, it's been interesting to see that. And yeah. I'm not, I'm just full disclosure. I'm not a fan, yeah. but I, I don't write, you know, nonfiction. I write fiction and I, and I, and I write domestic realism. So I'm not, I'm writing character driven rather than plot driven. So right. I, understandably I'm approaching this from my own self-interest, you know, my own point of view that is, you know, very much about like writing as well as possible and not writing to a formula. Right, right. Absolutely. And life is not, I mean, life doesn't offer much, many patterns usually. I mean, it, it, other than our routines, which are attempts to sort of control the chaos of, of the rest of the world, <laughs> which we cannot control. So anyway, enough, sorry. I know we have to move on, but <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I like what Zig, he's, what he's saying about, uh, the book industry, which is, it's unfortunate that, you know, it's sort of on this trajectory. Yeah. Hollywood's I think to a certain extent. Right. What, what would you like to see change in the industry? Like what would be your, like if you could change a few things in the next five years in the industry, like what would you like to see more of or less of? For film or, or uh, books for, yeah, for short yeah. stories or the, you know, it's, I would say that one thing I, I've talked about this, and I've written about this on bookish on Substack in bookish on Substack. One of the problems is certainly overpaying for a lot like debut authors 
I mean, the agents are, you know, intimately connected in, with that, but like paying a million dollars for an untested author. One really well-known publishing figure, Jonathan Karp said, probably it's been like 15 years ago now, he said, publishing is gambling. That was a very revealing moment. Mm -hmm. It is. So you're paying a million dollars for a book that you might sell, you know, like 20,000 copies of, and you're going to have to pay, you're going to have to put a lot of money behind the marketing. So, I mean, agents obviously are not there. They want to get a lot of money because they take 15% usually. And the author is not going to turn down a million dollar advance. And they also know the house is going to make it a priority to market because they want to make back what they, what they've paid. But that doesn't even count the printing costs and all the other associated costs with releasing a book. So I think paying less insane advances and letting people like Michael Lewis is a really interesting example. He does not take uh, an advance. He's paid entirely on royalties wow. unless that's changed. I, I know him. So, and I know the last time I talked to him about it, it was not, he was not taking advances. Mm -hmm. He just, his books aren't, you know, I mean, he's obviously with, he's published by Norton too, which is the only independent New York press that is not, it's the only independent big, big market, big press. It's, I think it's employee owned and they've managed to resist conglomeration, unlike all the other houses that used to be more literary rather than commercial. Mm -hmm. So if they didn't pay way too much, also the hardback, um, hard, publishing everything in hardcover with big presses, they do it because the margins are much bigger. If you charge $30 for a book that costs you 6 or $7 to print, and then bookstores take 40, they get a 40% off because they obviously sell it for the list price. They're going to make a much bigger profit on a hardcover than a paperback, but most people don't want to buy hardcovers. Mm -hmm. So if they would just focus on audio, paperback, trade paperback, and ebooks, it, but they don't want to do it. They're hidebound to these old, you know, patterns and stubbornly persisting with things that are not, I don't think, very smart business-wise. I mean, obviously no, no one in publishing is calling me for my advice. They all know this stuff too. I'm sure it's been discussed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that's, but I think that's another really good point is that, that these industry, this industry is so entrenched in these old ways of doing it, that it takes a lot to, to shake them out of even the, the like physical production of the book, like right. it's a right. back or and paper's a, a lot more expensive and you know, you have to cut trees and our planet is not in good shape. And right. so it's, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very complicated situation, so but there's also things you could do. I mean, for one, stop paying millions of dollars. <laughs> like Prince Harry allegedly got a $20 million advance for spare. Wow he did not need that much money. I mean, and they paid it because of course someone offered it because they were hell bent on getting the, the rights to publish it. But people literally go crazy. I have a friend who was an editor at an independent actually university press and he, he was an acquisitions editor. He said, literally they go crazy in these auctions. They're not thinking straight. Wow. So, I mean, I'm not saying I would behave much differently if I were in their shoes, but there are people who are like Norton's doing a great job. Mm -hmm. you know, so they, they don't anyway, yeah. <laughs> there are, there are ways to do it where you, you don't lose your mind and, and you're able to yeah. spread your resources yeah. around. Yeah. And let writers who are actually writers sell, like buy, like me, like buy my fucking books, you know, like I actually know what I'm doing. Right. So right. I, I'm just, instead I'm getting a $200 advance. It's great. I love my small press publisher who published my novel and memos, but 
I would like to be able to earn more of a living from my writing. Yeah, you know, even when I was publishing with Bloomsbury, my advances were modest, which was fine because, you know, they published four of my books, mm -hmm. but then they didn't earn, they didn't sell enough copies. So you just, you just know, I mean, most books don't sell more than 500 copies, literally. Right. Most books, even big press books. So there's just a lot of titles that are published that are not lead titles and they just languish on the list for these big presses and the authors are blamed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, anyway, there are other points of view, certainly, but yeah. that, that's not that I'm, that's not, I'm not wrong either. Right. Right. Well, Christine, thank you so much for, um, for joining us today for this, this conversation and for, um, uh, participating and reading Lessa's story and um, giving your your expertise look <laughs> at this at this story. For what it's worth, yes. yes. Um, and I realize you might have to have a clean um, podcast, and I just dropped an f bomb. So oh, that's okay. <laughs> it's not the first time. <laughs> yeah. thank All you right. For me. Oh, and, thank yeah, you. And Les, congratulations on his story. So oh, thank you so much. I know yeah. he appreciates that. So now we're going to bring on the author of The Slush Pile Demolitionist, Les Zig. But before we do that, I'm going to read a short bio of him. Les Zig is the author of the novel This, which is published by Midnight Publishing in 2023. He also wrote Prudence, which is published by ECG Press in 2023. August Falling from Pantera Press. Just Another Week in Suburbia, also by Pantera Press, and Pride by Busy Bird Publishing, which was published in 2017. His stories focus on characters facing adversity, trying to find their place in the world. He's had three screenplays optioned and unproduced screenplays placed and shortlist in over 100 competitions. His stories and articles have been published in various prints and digital journals. His blogs, often yelling at clouds, at www.leszig.com and that's l-e-s-z-i-g welcome Les. was there anything particular that was um that you found difficult about writing this story and writing about this particular experience no i actually did write this when i was in school so that's going again about 16 17 years ago um and initially, it's now got a chronology where it just from beginning to end, but originally I just wrote it, it was all jumbled up. And first draft was just a massive spill. So I think this final draft that you have is like about half the size of what it was originally. Oh, wow. And there was a lot of, I don't know what you'd call it, um, a lot of extravagance about the original draft. But I mean, that's what the original drafts that are there for, you know, to, uh, to put something out there that you can then work with and reshape and give it some uh make it concise and you know make it be the best of everything that's out there so um no it was like it spilled out i think it, it helped me exercise a lot of my own frustrations at the time you know mm -hmm. it's that sort of like that way we live vicariously through characters and other people's stories so it just helped me get all that out there and um and unfortunately it just actually took some shape as a proper story because there was the other subplots and that also happening yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you think um, in the story, you know, you have this this character of an of an author who the um, the protagonist of your story sort of sees as being um, this pretentious author, 
and um, you know that their work is pretentious and he's pretentious and and I love the conversation that um, that the 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 protagonist of your story has in his head between the editor and and this author and and how he imagines he's reacting to it. Um, do you think that that author is actually that pretentious or is it just the lens through which we're we're viewing this this author? That's a good question. I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, I think as far as that that author goes, he did have a, he became pretentious, I guess, in terms of what he was writing and putting out there. I mean, there's a facade there which they sort of explain later that he's, that he's living to maintain this affectation when the reality is, you know, he's not really struggling. He's not really the voice of the common people and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and that sort of goes to speak towards what I believe writing is. I mean, writing should be true to the, the, the author is, um, you know, and that story can be anything. It doesn't have to be contemporary. It could be set, it could be fantasy, sci-fi, whatever. I mean, there's a truth in all of that. And I think there's a delineation in that story between the narrator who's actually unnamed. So you could see sort of, it's hard to actually describe. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But between the narrator who's trying to find uh, a way to put his voice out there and he's just constantly suffering knockbacks and, you know, facing obstacles. Whereas this other author, this pretentious author is writing to a conceit because he believes it's what people expect. And mm -hmm. it really sort of speaks to that. Like what is your truth as a writer? Right. Right. And I, and I love, and I love that. I love how you're exploring those, those sort of those complicated uh, that's the complexities of being a writer and your relationship with readers and your relationship with your own art. And, and there's, of, of course, it's, it's, it's sad and it's devastating when the author takes his own life, but it's, there's such a, there's just such a, um, like to, to see that need that he has. And to your point, he is playing to to the masses and kind of playing to what he thinks people want and so it it always makes me think like what would he have written if he was writing from his true self you know would would it have been the the same or would it have been something different and i think that's one of the cool things about this story is that it makes it makes me think about those things it makes me think about those complexities and um in a way that's that's like a way that allows me to to look at both sides, to look at someone who's pretentious but also complex and lonely, and um, you know, there's no right or wrong in how you how you view these characters. No, I mean, I, I love ambiguity in storytelling, so it's always open for the reader's interpretation. I mean, one thing about finding that truth in yourself as a writer, for some of us, you know, it takes a long, long time, and I think for mm -hmm. myself. You know, I recall back in um, 2012, I sort of sat down to write one of my novels and it was only at that point I thought, I'm not holding anything back. I'm just going to let everything go put it on the page. And it took me, you know, 25 years or something to get to that. Whereas previously, I thought I was always writing, you know, the best I could write. But, yeah, as writing is very personal. So when you're putting stuff out there, it's always a case of what are people going to think of it? Because whatever they think of it, they're going to think of me um you know and it's sometimes i i find like i know i did it for myself but also because i've worked as an editor i find like authors hold part of themselves back because they're worried what will my partner mm. think what will my parents think what will my children my friends and that think of me writing this sort of stuff 
um, and those so you tend to write through filters, and mm. it takes a while to find, I guess, that feel and this fearlessness to just sort of say, you know what, I'm just putting on the page what needs to be on the page, regardless of what anyone else thinks of me. Uh, and that, like for myself, like I said, that took about 25 years to go through that evolution. And, and with writing, it's one of the few vocations where hypothetically you, you should get better and better. Uh, there, there's no impediments on it. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what your physical prowess is. It's not like sports where you've got a limited time. Uh, you should constantly be evolving and, you know, finding new ways of doing things and saying things and always finding a way to be truer to what your vision is and to the way you want to say things. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. Like reaching a sort of like when you get to the point where you don't hold anything back, you're like, that's how you evolve. You evolve to the next level. In yeah. a sense. Like you're able to, to reach this. At least that's the way I have I had a similar experience where I got to the point where I thought I'm not going to censor myself anymore because I was a I was always censoring myself and holding myself back. Um, by editing while I was writing. And when I got to that point where I could just vomit everything out and just really have a cathartic experience with what I was writing, I, I just blew my own hair back. You know, I was like, whoa, this is like, this is what I've always knew I could do. And I'm now I'm doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny back in my twenties, I recall like I was working on one of my fantasy novels at that time. And I recall looking at it and thinking, I don't think I'm going to get any better than this as a writer. Um, and that's also the arrogance of inexperience and the naivety. You know, you sort of think, oh, how good am I? Um, mm -hmm. But then it, it, it's funny because then as you get older and more experienced, you just realize the more I think I know, the less I do actually know. <laughs> but when you don't know anything, you think you know it all. That's so true. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's it's the paradox, right? Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, it's, it's funny too, because I had a conversation with a friend years ago and he was a, he's a very experienced writer, very credentialed writer. And he talked about going to a workshop where he handed in his work and he was just petrified what people were going to say. And he said this young kid walked in, gave his, handed in his workshop, was really cocky, just didn't have a care in the world. And my friend's just trying to look at how's this, how does this happen? You know, this guy is so sure of himself and I'm petrified. And I really thought about that for a while and I just realized, but my friend's pretty experienced and he knows everything that could possibly be wrong with his piece. And that's what he's fearing. Whereas mm -hmm. the younger guy just thought, no, no, I don't, I, it's perfect. You know? Um, so he has no fear of anything because he doesn't realize it could actually exist. So mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I find like with writers, the, a lot of experienced writers are dreadfully insecure um, because there's that constant question when you're writing a story or when you're writing, whatever you're writing, is it any good? Have I said it the best way possible? Am I being true to this vision in my head? Um, what will people think of it? And there's just this constant self-doubt that, uh, you know, arises and plagues you as you work through anything. Um, but in, in a way, it's also good because as long as you can control that fear, it's also forcing you to be better because it's forcing you not to settle for what it is. Now, obviously, you can go to the extremes like J.D. Salinger where he, uh, you know, allegedly could never release anything because he never felt it was good enough um right. so there's this I, I don't want to call it a happy medium because it's torturous when you're in it <laughs> uh but again it, it's a good it's good because it drives you but you know there's this place where you can exist where you can get the best out of yourself um and force yourself to do better but that doubt's always there regardless 
Yeah, absolutely. That's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Like, does that doubt ever subside? Like, do you ever get to the point? And should it? Like, should it? Like, should you? Should you reach that point? Yeah, I don't think it ever does. I think you're constantly forcing yourself to get better. It's like an athlete who um, is striving for the top. And then once you're at the top, there's people trying to knock you off your game. So you're always trying to find ways to get better. Uh, now, there's not that one-on-one competitiveness as an author, but you're always trying to find ways to be better, to do things better, to say things better, to tell stories better. Um, I think when you stop searching, then you tend to get complacent. And mm-hmm. and I think you see that in some of the arts where people have this, are releasing great stuff on their journey to the top. But then once they get there, they tend to... Uh, stagnate's too strong a word, but they... They're no, they're no longer releasing their best stuff because they no longer have that drive or that, you know, they're no longer pushing themselves and they no longer have people around them who are challenging them too. So exactly. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it should ever stop. It's just finding a way to keep that in check so you don't drive yourself mad right. searching for, like, because you're never going to write anything. It, nothing's ever going to be perfect. And, mm-hmm. and in the arts, you can give a piece to 10 people and 10 people have different opinions. So you're never going to satisfy everyone either. So, and it comes back to, I think, just finding that truth in yourself as a writer and, and honoring that. Yeah, absolutely. And honoring your unique voice and what you can contribute to the arts and not trying to pigeonhole yourself into somebody and, else's box. And I think the other thing too, I mean, I went through this because I, I was published as a, a novelist. I was published re- uh, relatively late, like not until 47. Um. And I, for quite a while, I was like, why am I getting published? Why, you know, why aren't people wanting to read my stuff and all that sort of, you know, all that sort of doubts. But then I really went through this cathartic period where I realized, you know what, I'm telling these stories for myself. And if someone else reads them, that's fantastic. I'd love if, you know, millions of people read them. But in the end, it's about trying to tell this story to the best of my ability because that's what I want to do. Um, Mm. And if I can do that and and I can feel that satisfaction in myself and that fulfillment, then that's the first and the, that's the major checkbox to tick. Um, everything else is a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important to love to write for yourself. You know, people ask like, well, who are you writing for? And I think it's so important to, to write for ourselves and to write something that we can enjoy because yeah, like you said, everything else is a bonus after that because it is so satisfying to like write. Because I know I've written short stories that I absolutely love. And then it's few and far between that people will read those stories and then they they get it the way that I the yeah. way that I get it, you know? And and I know it's weird and I know it's wacky, but I'm like, but I had so much fun writing this and I get such a kick out of it. But I know it's not going to be for everyone. Well, that's a funny thing. I mean, I've had novels where I've seen reviews and and people have said this or that, and I think, but I didn't put that in there. And it's, um, <laughs> but like, again, that's sort of, you know, everyone's interpretation is different and it's filtered through their own experiences and expectations and preconceptions. Um, and then I've also had the experience where I recall years ago, one of the first short stories I had published, I sent two stories to a journal and one I thought was fantastic. And the other one was like, it was a throwaway and it was the throwaway one, which got published. Wow. And so it's also that sort of, you know, you, you can be your own worst judge too. 
um, because you don't know how stories are going to speak to people. And also just a bit, you know, in publishing, a lot of things depend on timing too, about when's the story hitting the market? What, what are the trends at that point? What else has been out at that time? Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is why I always go back to, you know, writing is really about being true to yourself because that's the only thing you can really control. Everything else, mm-hmm. once the story leaves your computer, you have no power over. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. But what do you think about like where we are right now in publishing and like, do you have any advice or kind of thoughts for those who are seeking publishing? Um, I, I think publish, publishing is in a really interesting place. And I think it's going to morph more in the next 10 years because with the advent of print on demand, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, a self-published book looked like a self-published book. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, if you wanted to self-publish or indie publish, as we call it, um, all the technology is available to produce a book that's physically indistinguishable from something coming out of a million dollar publisher. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you have to put all the other components into it. You know, you have to get it edited well and all the design work and all that sort of stuff. But I think what's going to happen now is you're going to get a lot of micro publishers popping up because people are going to be able to do it themselves. And I see mm-hmm. when I'm submitting around and looking at, uh, publishers and that they advertise we have distribution here there and i think oh, that's the print on demand distribution which is implicit in those uh facilities which is fine but it's really easy now to publish a book and to have it digitally cataloged on all the main retailers all over the world you know whereas 20 30 years ago you couldn't do that if you published a book you had to get it printed traditionally which meant you had to get a distributor get it in bookstores which also meant limited reach so i think the industry is constantly morphing um, and you see audiobooks now really a big thing too. It's something I think that's going to continue to change, but I think you're going to see more and more people who just say, you know what? And I, and I know a couple of authors who've walked away from big traditional publishers to do it themselves because they didn't want to go through the rigmarole. So I think right now authors have more power over their own fate than any, you know, than any time in the past. And you do get, uh, you know, books that have been self-published, like um, Andy Weir's The Martian is probably a really good example. Right. You know, and that became an A-list movie with, you know, big actors like Matt Damon. Um, and he could only do that because that facility existed for him to create that book as a self-published book. And, and there's plenty of stories of authors who are doing it themselves who are actually doing really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think of publishers, and it's probably going to be blacklisted forever, is... <laughs> They always take an educated guesses on what they believe will sell, but they're just educated guesses. And in that phrase is the term guess. So it's still <laughs> just a guess. And there's plenty of examples throughout publishing and, and, and all the other arts, music and films. More. There's plenty of examples of books that weren't accepted by multiple publishers. And then it was picked up much later and became a hit. And you know, Harry Potter is always the best example of that. Mm-hmm. So it's really, and I went through all this, it's really easy to get discouraged. It's really easy to say, that's it, I'm quitting. Um, you know, and that's what this character in this, in this story does. You know, he's, he's at that point where he just doesn't know where to go next. Mm-hmm. But I think right now, because of the way technology is, you do have avenues that um, if you want to pursue them to do it yourself, you could do it yourself. Obviously, as writers, we all have ego and we prefer to get published by a traditional publisher because there's a validation in that also that, you know, mm-hmm. for someone to say your stuff is accepted, we find it good enough to go out into the commercial market for us to put money behind it and, and you know, uh, industry behind it. But 
right now also like i said there's just plenty of options if you're not getting traditionally published that you could pursue and get your work out there right right yeah i th i think it's a I think it's a real like there is a lot of power and in the author's hands right now and i also think about like the movie business as well i think it's it's growing a little bit more like there's more and more production companies coming up and people are independently producing and it's like people are taking that control back as well and yeah and not just in the publishing industry but in but in these other industries too and i so i think it's even though there's like some upheaval happening in these industries i think it's it's going to work in the favor of creatives because we will have uh the ability to to sort of make our own path in a way and and figure figure things out with the tools that we have to your point we didn't have decades ago well, with something like self-publishing, with print on demand, theoretically, you could publish a book for free if you knew how to design work and the, you know, the, the, the layout and all that sort of stuff. Now, that's not saying you should do it for free. Like I said, if you're going to do it yourself, then get all, you know, get everything in place, you know, get an editor, get a designer, get someone, get people to help you make it look the best it could possibly look and to, mm -hmm. for it to be the best it possibly can be. Um, I know... I know of authors who've done it themselves, but then just thought, look, I'm not, I don't care about the grammar or the spelling too much because the idea is so hot, it's going to just wow people. And it's like, no, it won't. Once people start spotting errors, mm -hmm. then, you know, I always sort of say like, it's like when you read any book or see a movie and then once you spot something, you think, oh, okay, that's not quite right. And But you stay invested in it. But then if you spot something else, it's like, okay, I'm no longer invested in this. Now I'm actually looking for issues. Mm -hmm. um, so those sort of things puncture the suspension of disbelief and take you out of the story. And, right. you know, it's like seeing a boom mic in shot in the film. Right. You know, so, right. Uh, this is actually a film, you know, when we know it's, we know it's a film, isn't that conceit? It is a film which it's a conceit that we're investing in this world, but for the time you're investing in it, there's that suspension of disbelief. And once you puncture that thing, you're taken out of the story and then start looking, start looking for, you know, issues with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love what you mentioned uh, earlier about this relating to the, to the protagonist of your story. Um, do you, this is something that Christine and I actually discussed was the, like what happens after the story, like the, you, you leave us in this ambiguous, uh, ambiguous space of not really knowing where this character is going to go. Like, are they going to become like this editor they're working for? Are they going to have a shift? Like, do you see, did you have a particular ending for them in mind and like where they're going to go after this or do, what were your thoughts? Uh, I, I have a really good friend, Laurie State is a great writer. And he, years ago, he's talking about unfurred option stories. And so the first option is the character comes to a door at the end of the story and goes through it. And the second option is they come to the door at the end of the story and they decide not to go through it. And the third option is they come to the door and they let the reader decide, did they go mm -hmm. through it or not? Mm -hmm. um, now, for myself, I'd like to think that the protagonist probably became a published author. Um, he might not have become the Stephen King level of a published author, but I'd like to think he found a happy place where he was satisfied with what he was doing and there's a cynicism in the storytelling from um, or in the perspective of the publisher there. And I'd like to think that he actually found an oppositional view where it's like, 
the cynicism, cynicism exists for stuff, for, for writing that's not true. And he was going to mm -hmm. find his own voice in that and find um, fulfillment and satisfaction to say, okay, I've written a really good story and he would get published now, why not sell millions? But he would have been happy with the endeavor because it was him putting his best, his best self out there. And, and that's really hard. I mean, I know with, with writing, once you submit a story or a novel, it's out there, you know, you're always very protective of it. It's like a child. You've put your best, you've done your best to bring bring it up, but now it's on its own. Um, and I know there's authors who are constantly feeling the need to defend their children. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to think that this, that this protagonist got to the point where it's like, no, nah, I think I'm finally comfortable in my own skin and my work's out there and it's a good representation to me and i don't have the same cynicism that the um the publisher had in that story mm -hmm. i like i like that i mean i personally i mean i think you could read it either way but i personally read it in that more hopeful way because i feel like the death of the the other author in the story shakes that like I read it as like, he's, he's quite shaken or they yeah. are quite shaken by, by what's happened to this and, and, and the, what this author has become and the way that, that the editor is so callous. And, and I, I feel like they're mulling it They're I see it as them they're mulling it over and like kind of, you know, getting to that door that you mentioned earlier and, and trying to decide for themselves, like, okay, who do I want to be moving forward? And, and, and how do I yeah. want to, to, to operate in this industry? Well, there's a frivolousness to his attitude when he first begins mm -hmm. his, his placement at this publisher. Um, and then I think he really understands the stakes, you know, and, and this is actually funny because I've worked on anthologies and I recall years and years ago when we first started our anthology uh, for the publisher where I work and I had to start sending out rejections. I remember I just felt absolutely awful. It was like, I'm thinking this person on the other side of his email is going to feel the way I felt so many times mm -hmm. and something I thought, which would be easy, which just be to, you know, write a rejection. It was really painful to do. And at that time we were trying to write personalized rejections to everyone. And then mm -hmm. after a couple of issues, it just became too hard to keep doing. Um, and so like, I think in this story, when uh, that author dies, I think the narrator realizes Oh, hang on. I mean, we're actually playing with people's mental health, with their well-being, with right. their lives. And I think that's a very confrontational moment for him. And it's also just very cathartic for him to realize I need to take this a lot more seriously than I am doing um, because someone else is going to be responding to the way I act mm -hmm. in relation to their submission. Right. And, and it, is, it is really hard because, you know, when you're, working on journals and publishers and as a publisher and stuff there is a you know it can be a very um disassociative process because you're really just dealing through letters and emails and it's just text on the page and stuff like that um mm. like i remember when i was really sensitive like i, I yeah I, I get rejected all the time and i just think okay next place i submit but it took me years to get to develop that thick skin uh, and I remember like, I had some awesome rejection stories in terms of, like, I recall uh, one publisher rejected me years ago and called me Leo. Um, <laughs> and that and that actually makes it into the story. It was a different name. He's changed mm -hmm. it. You know, mm -hmm. I, some years ago, I, I was rejected by a publisher and I keep a spreadsheet of where I've submitted things. And 
I'm looking at it thinking, I don't even have anything with this publisher. <laughs> and they've rejected me. So oh, I my gosh. Them. Yeah, and I emailed them. So it must be doing well. You're rejecting me. I don't even have anything with you. And they said, oh, sorry. Someone didn't tick off your last submission. I was like, I said, now you've rejected me twice. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> the same thing. And I didn't actually do it the second time around. So, um, mm. but yeah, I understand like, but when I was, um, you know, really sensitive about this stuff, it really was demoralizing. So in, in his mm. story, I think it gets to a point where he realizes, hang on, it's not as frivolous as, well, it's not frivolous at all. You know, mm-hmm. people are making life decisions based on how you respond to them. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think also, like, just as writers, we tend to be a lot more sensitive because we imagine that side of humanity so much more um, and we're constantly thinking about stuff and we're constantly living in, in a wherever, whatever we're doing, you know. I take a walk, I'm thinking, of, you know, where, where's this story go? What do I do with it? How can I make it better? Um, and usually the response to that is, I think it needs more trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I think <laughs> right. the fact... Poor yeah. characters. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, I, you know, like I've run workshops and I say to people, if, if this is a job ad, if I said, hey, wanted somebody to put people through hell, to torment them, to take away everything that they love, to hurt them, to murder some of their loved ones possibly, what's the, what's the name of the, the job? And it's mm-hmm. either a serial killer or a writer. Right. Um, so, and, and that's what, yeah, all stories are made up of, obstacles and problems and all that's what makes it interesting we live vicariously through the characters hoping they get to a better place because by seeing them get to a better place it inspires us to think my circumstances might not be the same but that's what i'm trying to do in life also i'm trying to get to somewhere better which is why stories talk to us and we connect to them and and, you know we hold many of them so dear to us years and years after we've read them yeah absolutely absolutely well, Les, this has been so great. Thank you so much for um, for taking the time to to talk with me today. Is there anything else you'd like to to say before we before no, we? No, I'll just thank you so much for selecting this story and, and this story too. Like I said, I wrote it sixteen years ago or something, mm-hmm. um, and it was published in the Dilly Doon. I don't know if I pronounced it correctly. Review last year and you guys have selected it to do it so mm-hmm. that's the other thing of writing sometimes it's just waiting and persevering and submitting and you know it, it, people sort of probably have some people probably have this uh belief that you know you submit something it gets picked up and away you go this story is taking like 16 years to get out there so it yeah. is just perseverance at times yeah absolutely Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Les. And uh, we're thank you for sharing this story with us and for sharing your thoughts and your time. And um, if you would like to check out um, more about Les's work, you can find him at his website. It's www.lessig.com. That's L-E-S-Z-I-G. Thank you so much, Les. No, thanks so much, Megan. No one reads short stories anymore I really don't know what they're written for Go write a short story and throw it out the door Cause no one reads short stories Funny, sad, or gory No one reads short stories Yes, no one reads your story